0: Hello, everyone. This is New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week, free knowledge and innovation. Sometimes obvious ideas work. If you want to encourage more innovation, give people better access to knowledge. All right, let's start in the 1800s. Over 1883 to 1919, but mostly after 1899, Andrew Carnegie provided the funds for the construction of 1,700, approximately free public libraries. They were scattered across the United States. There's even one in my hometown. Burks and Nenka have a 2020 paper that sets out to measure the impact of this library building spree on innovation. They want to compare the patenting rate of cities and towns that received libraries to otherwise identical ones that did not. But the challenge is finding cities that did not receive libraries, but which are otherwise a good control group. What Burks and Nenka use is a set of 200 towns that applied for library funding and even were approved for funding but then changed their mind and rejected Carnegie's money. Why would they do that? Well, there are a variety of possible reasons, but a big one is distaste for Andrew Carnegie himself after he hired a militia to violently put down a mining strike. Several people died, or many people died in this uh, put-down. Burks and Nenka show that these rejecting cities were, on average, no different than the acceptors on various observable metrics, such as education levels, racial makeup, job mix, age, population. So whatever the reason that they rejected, we have to believe it's uncorrelated with a tendency to change your patenting behavior after your application to get a library is accepted uh, in order for these results to be valid. And Berkson could do a couple of other things in the paper to establish that this is you know, pretty much the case, at least in my view. Because it turns out that patenting does change pretty noticeably for the towns that get libraries as compared to the ones that applied and didn't get them. The main story is visible in a figure in the newsletter, which shows the average number of patents per city per year on a log scale. And you can see in this very clearly that towns with libraries looked pretty similar to towns without ones up until they both applied and received money for libraries. But then afterwards, the towns that kept the money and got libraries received or tended to have about 8 to 12% more patents per year than the ones that didn't. Moreover, Berks and Ninka also provide some supportive evidence that the increase in patenting really does come from library access. Patents from cities with libraries are more likely to contain words associated with citing a book, for example, volume, his book, pages, etc. Okay, now let's fast forward to 1975. In that year, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office began a program to dramatically increase the number of patent depository libraries around the country, with this goal of eventually having at least one library in every state. Patents provide inventors with exclusive rights over their invention for a period of time, but in exchange, they're supposed to disclose how the invention works. And in theory, that should let other people build on the underlying principles expressed in new inventions. But prior to the era of the internet, to easily read published patent documents, you needed to go to one of these libraries, and access to these libraries was really unequally distributed. Furman, Watzinger, and Nagler have a 2018 working paper that tries to measure the impact of getting a patent library and it follows a very similar strategy as the previous paper. They compare regions that got a patent depository library to otherwise similar regions that did not. In their case, they use the fact that federal depository libraries serve as this potentially obvious control group. Federal depository libraries are libraries that provide access to federal regulations and laws and so on, and they're also the most common library sites where patent depositories get set up. So this paper compares patent rates in the 15 miles around a federal depository that gets a patent depository library to the patent rates in the 15 miles around federal depository libraries that didn't get one, but which are also close to the ones that did within 200 miles. You might ask, why did some federal depository libraries get patents and others not? It's largely just like first come first serve is how the patent office decided to roll these out. So whoever, whichever federal depository library applied first would get it, and why would they apply? Often the reasons were just idiosyncratic, like the person running it wanted to uh, go to the annual DC training uh, as just a trip. So as with Burks and Nenka, this paper finds the patent rate of regions that get a patent library diverged from those that didn't in the subsequent years. And all told, getting a patent library seems to boost local patent rates by about 17%. Furman, Nagler, and Watzinger are also able to provide a lot of supporting evidence that this increase in patenting is driven by improved access to patents. For example, the effect is strongest for young firms and for small firms, and we might assume those ones are less likely to have alternative ways to access patents. The effect is strongest for technologies that disclose the most information in patents, which tends to be chemistry patents. Moreover, patents from near patent libraries cite more geographically distant patents, and they also cite a wider variety of technology classes. That suggests the inventors are learning about what's relevant to their work from the library, rather than from their social network, which is going to tend to be more local and sort of clustered in similar technologies. Of course, today, anyone can read any patent online. We shouldn't really expect it to matter if you're close to a patent library anymore. But this is actually A form of confirmatory evidence that these patent depository libraries really did matter because the first internet searchable patent databases became available in 1995 and it turns out the positive impact of having a physical patent depository library disappeared around that time now this also suggests improving online access to knowledge might be another way to boost innovation so enter wikipedia here anyone with access to the internet can now read in encyclopedia that has 6.3 million articles in the English language, and for comparison, the Encyclopedia Britannica never had more than 100,000 articles, even in its digital incarnations. Wikipedia also has extremely detailed scientific articles. Thompson and Hanley have a 2020 working paper that finds Wikipedia covered 93% of topics in upper-level undergraduate chemistry courses, and nearly half of the topics in master's-level graduate schools. So they want to ask, Does access to Wikipedia have a similar effect on innovation as access to libraries? To test this, Thompson and Hanley perform an experiment. They commission 43 new chemistry articles written by PhD students, and then they randomly post half the articles to Wikipedia. They want to see if access to these articles, as compared to the unposted ones, exerts an influence on science. Now, only 0.01% of academic papers directly cite Wikipedia. Seems to be kind of embarrassing to do that. But Thompson and Hanley provide a lot of evidence that scientists read and are actually influenced by these Wikipedia articles. First off, these articles are really specialized chemistry topics. For their experiment, they focus on material for chemists from chemistry grad school that isn't already on Wikipedia. But even though the topic is quite niche, the readership is huge. 4,400 views per month, 2 million total views as of February 2017. Moreover, while people may be shy to cite Wikipedia they're not shy about citing the scholarly literature that is listed in the Wikipedia reference list. Thompson and Hanley show references in articles they published to Wikipedia got 91% more citations on average than references in their control group of unpublished articles. So people are reading these articles and citing the referenced literature rather than citing Wikipedia itself. Finally, the bulk of Thompson and Hanley's paper uses a cool textual similarity metric to identify the influence of Wikipedia. For each of their chemistry articles, they compute the similarity of the wiki text to the text of published academic work in Elsevier. Basically, they have this method of checking things like the extent to which both articles use the same unusual words. They compare the similarity of Elsevier and wiki articles published six months before a wiki article is published to the similarity of Elsevier and wiki articles published six months after a wiki article. And the paper, ha- or the newsletter, has a figure that shows how the distribution of similarity changes over that period. Essentially, after a wiki article gets posted, you can see that there are more Elsevier articles that have a very high similarity to wiki articles. In the control, you see the opposite. More Elsevier articles that are dissimilar to the unposted wiki articles are published over time. So, Thompson and Hanley provide a lot of evidence that these Wikipedia articles shape the direction of science. They get read a bunch, The things they cite get cited a bunch, and after they're published, you see more peer-reviewed articles that use similar words and phrases as the wiki article. Another thing the paper does is generalize this approach to all of chemistry Wikipedia. They look at 27,000 chemistry articles published on Wikipedia and 326,000 chemistry articles published on Elsevier, and they ask, how does the distribution of similarity change for Elsevier articles published before and after Wikipedia articles? what they find is quite similar to their much smaller experiment comprised of 43 new Wikipedia articles. There's an increase in the number of Elsevier articles that use similar language as a given Wikipedia article after it gets published, as compared to the Elsevier articles published before that article. To close, public libraries, patent depository libraries, at least in the pre-internet days, and chemistry articles in Wikipedia, in all three cases, new access seems to have had a measurable impact on innovation. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from new things under the sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible, but rigorous research syntheses. New things under the sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.